We're still looking in Amos. We're in Amos chapter 5. So grab your Bible if you haven't gotten it yet and uh, open there with me. <coughs> Amos chapter 5. This is a long chapter, uh, 27 verses compared to uh, chapter 4, only had 13, uh, 15 for chapter 3. So this is, this is one of the longer chapters in the book. There's a lot here. Uh, we are not going to cover everything, and we're going to move on after this class. We're not going to spend two weeks on it. Um, and so what we're going to do is, uh, instead of giving my summary first and then reading the text, we're going to read the text first, uh, and then I'll give a little summary. And I have a few points that I, I think are, are really apropos for us to pull out. Uh, but as we go through, if there's anything that, that just grabs you, strikes you, say, hey, I, I want to know about this. Uh, what's going on here? Please stop us. Uh, and, and lead us in that direction, but we'll keep moving on. Uh, there, there are a few big touch points along the way that we want to see, um, and then uh, we'll be done, <coughs> Lord willing, on time. Uh, let me open in prayer before we read. Oh, gracious Lord and God, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to hear your word. Lord, your word is true. Uh, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Uh, and uh, you give us knowledge uh, from the very throne of heaven to the men who you have appointed, the prophets carried along by your Holy Spirit to speak as you gave them utterance, uh, and you are the one who teaches us and leads us by your word, and so we pray that you would do that. We pray that we would hear the voice of the prophet today, not only uh, ringing out uh, the day of judgment and the day of the Lord, but help us to see and look forward to the day of Christ, when he will return and draw his people to himself, we pray that you would make us humble to hear when you reprove us. We pray that you would make us receptive to your word and to your teaching. And as you call your people in Israel to seek you, to spurn evil and seek the good and turn again to you that they should live, we pray that you would allow us the grace to do just that. Grow us in true repentance, O Lord, and through repentance give us uh, faith and life in Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, let's begin reading Amos chapter 5, uh, and we're going to read the entire chapter. <coughs> Hear now the word of the Lord. <coughs> Amos chapter 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness the, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gates, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him and have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and, those, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, 
or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Uh, one of the things that you notice immediately in this chapter is a change of tone. Uh, tone is sometimes uh, ethereal, hard to grasp. It's not always there in, uh, in concrete black and white, but there is a, a definite change from what we've seen already in the first four chapters where, uh, where Amos is coming against the people and declaring judgment, declaring judgment, declaring judgment. It is something that, that is on its way and can't be avoided. Uh, and now he begins with a lamentation, and there is uh, a change here um, in, uh, in two sections where now he's calling for repentance. The idea of repentance has been in the other uh, areas. As, as, as Amos, I keep wanting to call him Isaiah, as Amos exposes uh, the sin of the people, there is an, uh, a sort of underlying theme of these are the things that you need to turn away from, but here it is very clear. Uh, and, and it breaks into uh, a few big sections. There is this theme of lamentation, verses 1 through 17, and then this idea of the judgment day of the Lord, beginning in verses 18 to 27. Um, but surrounding in, or, or sort of inside this theme of lamentation, uh, that Israel is dead, that the virgin Israel is slain on the mountains, there is this call to live. So there's death and there is life. And this, this call to live comes through this call to repentance. You see it in verse 4. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Uh, verse 14, seek good and not evil. Uh, that you may live, uh, to seek the Lord, to turn away from the things that they have been doing. Uh, and we see here this picture that even in the midst of this, this death, even in the midst of the sins that have uh, completely wreaked havoc upon Israel and now have drawn them to the point where, uh, where judgment is inevitable, yet the Lord continues to send his message of repentance and life. Um, and he speaks to those who are dead and calls them to live. I couldn't help but think of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 2 uh, as I read this chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is the way the Lord works with his people. Uh, he calls dead people and commands them to rise, even though they can't do it by themselves. We saw this the last few weeks uh, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, there is a man uh, who is let down through the ceiling uh, because he's paralyzed. And Jesus gives him a command that he can't, he can't keep. Uh, he can't uh, follow through. The Lord says, get up. Uh, and if the Lord had not enabled him to get up, uh, it would have been mere words. It would have been simply a command that's almost mocking him, the fact that he can't get up. We see the same thing uh, at the, uh, the passage that we read last year. There's a man whose hand is withered. It's, it's really, uh, the word is uh, like atrophied. It's, it's shrunken. It's, it's useless. And Jesus commands him, stretch out your arm. Well, un unless the Lord enables, he can't even do what he's being called to do. And we see that same thing here. It begins with this lamentation. You notice in uh, verse 1, this idea of lamentation. You see it again in verse uh, 16 and 17, this wailing and lamentation. And so the entire framework of the first half of this chapter, at least, is 
that Israel is dead. Uh, They're dead in their trespasses, their sins in which they once walked, and yet the Lord is calling them to repentance, calling them to turn and to live. And unless the Lord enables them, they can't do that. Just like the man can't stretch out his withered hand, just like the paralyzed man can't rise and pick up his bed, just like you and I can't rise uh, in newness of life unless the Lord enables us. And so there is a a change of tone here that the Lord is coming, uh, and this is the point at which uh, he actually begins to speak of a remnant. We talked uh, several weeks ago, I believe, in, um, in chapter 3. Uh, look back there, chapter 3, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. That was the only remnant that was left uh, for Israel. It was all the, the things that they held on to, the things that they cherished and loved in this world, their earthly possessions that couldn't save them. That, those are the only trace remnants that the Lord says will be left. But now uh, we see that the Lord is, is speaking uh, in verse 15. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He begins to speak of, of something that's left over, something that the Lord is yet raising up in the midst of all of this death and this destruction And it is God in his grace speaking to his people. So there's this change of tone, and I hope you see it. I hope you see it even in the midst of of all of this destruction. And I think the the way that we could summarize uh, verses 1 through 17 uh, is to say that real repentance can raise the dead to life. That's what the Lord is calling them to. He's calling them to real repentance, not just uh, more and more ceremony. Uh, Take a look at verse uh, 5. Uh, 4 and 5, seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't enter to Gilgal. Don't cross over to Beersheba, for all these things are going uh, into exile. They'll come to nothing but seek the Lord. What does that look like? Well, it's mirrored in verse 14. Seek good and not evil. Uh, It's not just a lip service to seek the Lord, but it's it's justice. It's establishing justice in the gate, it says here in uh, in verse 15, it is letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In verse 24, and we, we think of some of the uh, corresponding texts in the New Testament. Uh, James asked the question, somebody says they have faith without works. That's their claim. And let's evaluate it, James says. Can that kind of faith save him? Well, no, that kind of faith can't save him. Because faith that has no works attending it to it proves that it's a dead faith, that, it, that it's... Uh, merely uh, a lip service, kind of like the people in Israel. And so the Lord is calling his people to real repentance, real repentance that is attended with good works and attended with the things that he commands his people and with justice and with walking humbly with the Lord their God. And he says that in this real repentance there is life, even though everything around them is death. Um, And then the tone switches back again in verse 18. This idea uh, of the day of the Lord again uh, shows that there is this unstoppable judgment coming for those who refuse to acknowledge their situation. The day of the Lord with darkness and gloom is coming to sweep away the enemies of the Lord and the people continue to multiply vain offerings and empty will worship. Uh, But the Lord of hosts finds these things repugnant and he's going to give the people what their sins deserve and what they desire. Uh, And so we've got these two big sections here uh, and we've talked a little bit about them Now, we have a few points that I'd like to zero in on, but I think this is the way that we could summarize it. Verses 1 through through 17 shows us that true repentance can raise the dead to life, Uh, but verses 18 to 27 uh, shows us that the Lord draws near in judgment to those who refuse to turn to him. So that's the layout of of our passage. Uh, What are the things that grab you as as we go through here? Again, I've got some points that I want to focus in on, but what are the things that grab you, that, that strike you as, uh, maybe here's, here's where you see the Lord's care and concern for his people, maybe here's where you see something else that the Lord is exposing uh, that, uh, that we haven't seen already. What do you see, Dave? Okay.
Yeah, and, and what, a, what a perversion of what the Lord has said ought to happen. Um, justice ought to be the thing that the, that the poor and the oppressed can seek. That they can, they can cry out to the Lord and, and seeking and receiving justice is their reprieve. You know, and, and if justice is not given, then there, there really is no hope for them. Uh, this idea of, of turning justice into wormwood, the idea is, is this, this bitterness. You know, it's referring to these, these bitter herbs that they would use. And, and rather than being something sweet, something refreshing, it's, it's a sort of experience. Even seeking out justice for the poor and the oppressed is something that makes life even more bitter. Uh, think of, uh, think of um, Naomi when she returns from uh, living in, uh, in a foreign land and her husband and her sons have died. Uh, and the people call her Naomi, and, or call her um, Naomi, uh, which basically means sweet. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has, has made life very bitter for me. It, it's, it's this pressing down, it's this, it's this sort of uh, bleakness and gloom, almost like he, he speaks of later, um, over all the course of their life. And, and the Lord is calling the people to account because they have done just this to the poor. Uh, Martin Luther said uh, once that, uh, that usury uh, lives on the backs of the poor. Uh, that's, that's where it's found. Uh, taking uh, interest and, and all of these exorbitant rates, you, you see that on, uh, in verse 11. You trample on the poor. You just walk over them. You exact taxes of grain from him. And you've built houses of hewn stone, and you shall not dwell in them. What are they doing? Well, they're exacting all these taxes, which the Lord has very clearly said in, in the Old Testament law that they ought not to do. Uh, that they, they cannot charge interest uh, to their brother Israelites. They cannot uh, exact usury. And yet they've done that, and they've done that only to line their own pockets. In order that they can build houses of hewn stone. That, that's extremely opulent uh, in this time. If you lived in a stone house... Oh, man, that was a mansion. That was, that was the big house on the hill. Um, you know, if you had this big, luxurious vineyard, uh, and, and what a condemnation that it comes at the expense of, of justice. So they turn justice to wormwood. They cast down righteousness to the earth. This is the same idea uh, as you find in verse 11, trampling on the poor, casting down uh, righteousness. It's, it's really a spurning of righteousness. Now, not only do they, do they demolish it, but they... Uh, they almost spite it. The Lord has called them to justice and called them to righteousness, and it's, it's a thumbing the nose of what the Lord has demanded uh, among his people. Chris, did I see a, a hand in the back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I like this. Uh, there's really a contrast here in verses 4 and 5. Seek me and live, but don't, don't seek Bethel. Uh, don't enter into Gilgal. Don't cross over to Beersheba. Uh, that last cross over there, that, that actually Beersheba was in the southern kingdom. The Lord is speaking to Israel in the north, um, and there were apparently people going on pilgrimage. Well, uh, if the Lord has ceased to listen to us at Bethel, if the Lord has ceased to listen to us at Gilgal, maybe we'll go to Beersheba, uh, because all of these were really important places in Israel's history. We talked uh, at, at length already about the importance of Bethel, right? It was the place where uh, Jacob saw the, uh, the vision. He had the vision of the stairway into heaven and the angels ascending and descending. And he said, this is the house of God. This is where God dwells. And so he set up an altar, uh, and, and a good one, a, a memorial stone, really. It wasn't, wasn't an altar. It was a memorial stone, the one that he had rested his head on while he was fleeing from his brother. He set that up, and it, and it became an important place for him when he came back. He could remember God's faithfulness at Bethel. What do you remember about Gilgal and Beersheba? Why were these important places in Israel's history? Why would the people seek God in these places? Yes, in, in Bethel and in Gilgal and, uh, and also eventually in Dan. Um, so there, there was a, a calf set up in Dan, a calf set up in Gilgal. Uh, and that was at the time of the splitting of the kingdoms to keep the people from going down south, uh, which is interesting because here the people go south to Beersheba, not to Jerusalem, uh, not to the temple where the Lord has said, this is where you shall worship me, but they go to, to Beersheba. What do you remember in else, uh, elsewhere in the history of Israel about Gilgal and Beersheba? Either one. Um, so, yes, Gilgal was where they crossed over into the Promised Land. Um, and it was where the manna stopped. When they were encamped at Gilgal, they began to eat of the produce of the land. It was their entrance into the Promised Land. It was where the Lord uh, began to provide for them in a new way. And so there is really this, this wonderful history about Gilgal. Uh, and, and there were promises that the Lord made to them. And, and they were meant to... Uh, you know, they set up that stone pillar crossing over the Jordan, and they set it up, uh, and they were to remember what the Lord had done. That's why they set up the 12 stones, so that in time to come, when your sons would see this, you can tell them, uh, thus we walked across uh, the dry land, uh, and the Lord brought us into this place. And so there was a, a good history. There was, there was something gracious that the Lord had done for his people, uh, but now it's been corrupted. All right, good. What, what about Beersheba? Lots of history around Beersheba, uh, especially connected um, with Jacob, with Israel. Um, and uh, you see it um, actually beginning with his, his father. Uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 24. I don't remember which verse. So we're going to have to turn there together and then I'll find it. What's that? Where they? No, that was uh, Egypt. I'm sorry. It's it's uh, it's Genesis 26. Um, so in verse 17, uh, Isaac is there, and he is going through the land. Um, and, uh, and there is a quarrel. Verse 17, Isaac departed from there and encamped at the valley of Gerar. And settled there, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And there's a quarrel in verse 19. And they said, the water's ours. And so he kept going. Uh, he went on there and found another place called Rehoboth. Uh, and then verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you, and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. 
So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. And it goes on and on there. So we see this, this promise of the Lord. He shows up at, at Beersheba and he says, I will be with you. And then pagans start to gather to him at Beersheba and they say, hey, we've noticed that the Lord is with you. This is a really big deal. Now, this is the promise of Abraham. I will be with you and will be God to you and to your descendants after you. Uh, we won't look at it, but Beersheba is also the place uh, where Jacob and his sons stop on the way out of the promised land. It is all the way down in the far reaches, almost into Gaza. And so as they're going down in the midst of a famine, they stop at Beersheba, where God had promised before to his father to be with him. And the Lord says, no, go ahead, go down into Egypt, and I will be with you. There is this promise at Beersheba over and over again, the Lord will be with his people. And so, oh, God promised at Beersheba that he'll be with us. Maybe if we want to be with God, we've got to go back there. And they're attaching this significance and, and really this wonderful history of what the Lord had done, they're attaching it to externals rather than actually seeking the Lord. They're being satisfied with something less than uh, true seeking of the Lord. He's up in the front, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and the people throughout their history uh, at various times would ask, is the Lord with us or not? Um, is the Lord going to go with us? This was, this was the uh, sort of anxiety of the people that, uh, is the Lord with us and how can you know? Uh, and one of the things they did is they went to the places where God was faithful in the past. I don't know if any of you uh, were raised in a church where uh, you went to summer camps every year. We were. We, we had several events throughout the year, and just in, in the upbringing in, in the Armenian church uh, that I was in, uh, there was this constant sort of flux of how are you doing with God? And, and you could watch almost the entire youth group getting ready to go to our summer camps because this is where God will meet with us. We'll go back to that camp. We'll go back to that place. We'll go back to this, this sort of magical realm where God meets with teens, and that's where it will happen where all throughout the rest of the year, we're sort of waiting, well, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not doing so well spiritually, but once I get back to Winterfest, once I get back to camp, oh, it's going to be great. This is the same sort of thing that the Israelites are doing. Oh, well, God dwells in Beersheba. God dwells in Bethel. God dwells in wherever. God dwells in Jerusalem. And we, we spoke several, several weeks ago uh, when uh, Samuel, I'm sorry, when Solomon built the temple. Lord, the the highest heavens can't contain you. Yeah, you've put your name here, but the Lord is all and fills all, and we have our being and, and live and move and have our being in him. He is over all things. We, we don't have to be in a particular place. We don't have to be connected to a particular uh, external to be in the presence of the Lord. We want to gather together, uh, but you know, there, there's no special magical place where God meets with his people here and only here, but that's what the, the Israelites were doing. And so instead of seeking the Lord, they were seeking externals. They were, they were seeking things that were less uh, than, than what God had promised to be for them. Anything else? Scott. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah, this is a this. Yeah. Now let's talk about that. Uh, this was one of the the points I wanted to zero in on. Uh, we see in verse thirteen, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Why is it wise for somebody to keep silent in this time? Dave? Yeah. 
Okay. Uh huh. So, so are there times, so if I can uh, sort of draw out what you're saying, um, the people that are commanded to be silent, are not commanded, but just told this is the wise thing to do, are the ones who are on the right side, the ones who are actually speaking for the Lord, uh, maybe the ones in verse 10 who reprove in the gate. These are the ones who speak a, a message of rebuke to those who are doing evil. And the prophet is saying there are times when it might actually be more wise not to reprove. Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, where was the... Should have numbered these pages. <laughs> yeah, uh, so th there is an idea here. Um, the, the context makes it clear that the reason it's prudent um, is not because the truth shouldn't be spoken, if I can use so many negatives in the same sentence. Um, it, it's wise to be silent not because you're unable to speak the truth or, or the truth is a bad thing, but because there are people who simply won't listen and will, will turn um, and, and be violent against those who speak the truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Bill, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, so being wise enough to, to notice um, and uh, maybe discerning enough to see what the Lord is already doing. Now, Amos, Amos had the advantage of being a prophet. The Lord revealed what he was doing, and Amos is saying in this situation, it might actually be more wise not to say anything. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a faithfulness sometimes. In, in waiting to see what the Lord will do. Um, and, and so we need to weigh what does that faithfulness look like and in, in what situations. I think, um, Dave, you're spot on with what's happening here. Notice some of the language. Uh, it's not only um, uh, that they'll, they'll uh, keep silent, but notice what else is happening in this place, the gate. That's another uh, a key term here. Uh, verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. Now, the gate was the, the judicial seat. We've talked about turning justice into wormwood. We've talked about even the judicial system is off the rails, and it's become this thing that is no good for those who are poor. Um, and they hate him who reproves in the gate, who comes into where they are and where they're oppressing. Anybody who says, you ought not to do that, well, that gets a little too close to, to uh, their sins uh, because we see that's where they're, uh, they're sinning. Uh, verse 12, I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Well, this reproof shows up, and it's a confrontation to those who refuse to listen to the Lord. It's a face-to-face -face, uh, confrontation with those who are already showing themselves not to want to listen to instruction. They are they're subverting the works of the Lord and what the Lord has commanded. Now, I think Proverbs is really helpful here. Uh, Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not repro reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man, and he will love you. And then Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into the man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. That's a good one. Um, if you have a foolish person who refuses to listen to reason, um, you, know, you can beat him uh, all day long, and he still won't get it. 
uh, and won't get the, uh, the instruction you're trying to give him. But those who are wise uh, will receive reproof. And so Amos is exposing the folly of these people, uh, the foolishness that they, they won't even listen when the Lord sends his prophets. That was something that we saw a while ago. The Lord said, here's the blessing I've given to you, my people. I sent prophets, and I gave you uh, Nazarites, and you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you told the prophets not to prophesy. Because it, it, it's too confrontational. You don't want to be shown that what you're doing is the wrong thing. Now, the, the irony here, um, Cynthia, we'll, we'll get to you in just a minute. The irony here is, um, <laughs> did Amos follow his own instruction? He's telling us how prudent it might be just to be silent while he's railing against the sins of Israel. And then in chapter 7, uh, we looked at it a while ago, and we'll get there eventually, uh, he shows up at Bethel, and he begins to reprove the people in Bethel, and the high priest in Bethel says, don't talk here, go home and, and, and tell your people back there about all this sort of thing. So we see Amos saying, uh, sometimes it might be wise to be silent, but I'm not going to be silent. And so, and so there is this... Uh, this sort of, well, is it, is it worth the rebuke that you may get to speak the truth? And, and this is, notice it's a, it's a matter of prudence. It's a matter of wisdom. It's not a matter of law and gospel. Um, and sometimes we need to be wise about who we speak the truth to and when. And that's not necessarily a right and a wrong. It's a wise and a foolish. Uh, and, and we bear the, the repercussions for those things. Dave, I see your hand, but I saw Cynthia first, and then we'll come back to Dave. All right. When there is no rule of law and when there is no justice for those who are oppressed, uh, a society has really gone down the tubes. Um, and I, I'm not, uh, all of you probably know far better what's going on in the world than I do, but you hear from time to time about corruption in lots of different countries, and we look at why are the people so poor and starving and all of these things, and aid money is sent and just kind of evaporates. <laughs> and, and where does it go? Uh, well, the people who continue to line their pockets and continue to, to pervert justice. Um, and, you know, people show up and try to help, but it, it's just, it, it's wickedness to the nth degree because even uh, the systems that are there to preserve justice have been corrupted to such a degree that there is no justice, that they turn, they turn justice into wormwood, into bitterness for the people. Absolutely. Dave, I saw your hand. Maybe. Right, and, and what, is, uh, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10 about the Old Testament? He says, these things were written for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Here's an example of what not to do. Um, and, and that's one of the difficulties. Um, you know, you, you hear criticisms today from, uh, from unbelievers. Well, the Bible's terrible. It's full of all these awful things, and there's, uh, there's rape and pillaging and murder and war and all these things, and why would you... Um, you know, well, we need to di discern between what is prescriptive 
and what is descriptive in the scripture. And one of the wonderful things about scripture is that God does not pull out any of the sins of the people that he uses in order to clean up the narrative so we will say, man, that David was great. He was spotless. No. <laughs> uh, David did a whole bunch of things that he ought not to have done. And he, he still called a man after God's own heart. And it can't be because David was so wonderful. And we see this over and over and over again in Scripture that it is, it is completely honest with the sins of the people that the Lord is using. Uh, and I think that helps us so that we don't despair of our own hearts. We say, oh, wow, I'm full of sin. Oh, yeah, you bet you are. And so is everybody else that the Lord uses, but he uses them and he, he brings them out of death and into life, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And it's not by anything that we do. It's by, by the grace and the mercy of the Lord. So Chris and Scott, we're getting there. Yeah, and we want to do so prudently. We want to, we want to do so with wisdom. Um, and, and that's a hard call sometimes. Uh, we, uh, we were over at our new place yesterday. Uh, so we bought a house recently. We closed on Monday, and uh, we were taking some things over to the shed. Um, and one of our new neighbors, I don't know anything about him, uh, one of our new neighbors walked through the yard and introduced himself, and we started talking. And he told us all about himself and his daughters and his wife, and he's a school teacher, and he's, uh, you know, he said he's a diehard liberal and all these other things. And I just sort of, just sort of took it in and took it in. And this morning, Sarah asked me, uh, did he ask you what you do? <laughs> no, he didn't, and I didn't tell him. Uh, because normally that's the first thing. Hi, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? I'm a minister. End of conversation. Um, and... <laughs> I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not. He seemed happy to tell me about what he does. Um, and eventually, I, you know, we'll get around to it. I'm not, I'm not hiding it. I'm not ashamed. He didn't ask him. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to tell um, He just didn't ask. And, and now wasn't the right time. Um, it's, you know, who, who knows? Um, but we want to be, be wise with those things. Um, now, there's a difference between that wisdom, um, which... Uh, 
you know, when, when it's not wisdom, when it's, when it's unwise, when it's not prudent, um, our attempts to speak up can sometimes be just um, obnoxious. <laughs> uh, notice, the, notice the way that Amos is not obnoxious. He is calling it like it is. He is telling the people about their sin, but he's not deriding them. He's not even, uh, you know, okay, so you cows of Bashan, maybe. Um, but that, that's the Lord's word. But he, he's not telling them, oh, you're so stupid. I can't believe what's wrong with you people. What? Oh, come on. You know, he is tender toward them. He's, he's warning them. And there is this genuine concern from the prophet for the people of God. Judgment is coming. Won't you seek the Lord and live? Won't you turn? Why don't you put away your injustice and seek the good? Why don't you hate evil? He is tender toward them. He's not obnoxious. He's not showing up in the northern kingdom and saying, I've got a message from the south where we've got everything together, and wouldn't you like to be like us? He doesn't do that. He is tender. He is kind. He's generous. But he's honest. Uh, and I think when we, when we do speak up, we need to figure out how to be as much like Amos, bold and clear and truthful, uh, but also tender and, uh, and conscientious uh, toward those that we're speaking to. Good. We want to keep moving here. Scott, a quick one. Get a quick one in. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it was quite a while ago when we were going through the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, we discussed the fact that when God speaks and people don't hear, that is never a good thing. That is a sign of judgment. Uh, when the Lord is speaking and people refuse to hear. Um, it's, it, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, talking about tongues, it's, it's a sign for the unbelievers. It's really a judgment against them. Uh, but we see this throughout, and I like the way you're drawing that out, this idea of, well, therefore, you've got the blessing of a house, but you won't enjoy it. Therefore, you've got the blessing of a vineyard, but you won't get to drink of it. Therefore, there are wise and prudent people, but you won't get to listen to them. Um, this idea that it is, it is part of the judgment. I like that. Good. Uh, let's move on, because the last big piece is this idea of the day of the Lord. Take a look at verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Who are these people that are desiring the day of the Lord? And what do they want? Uh, what are they hoping to get? Oh, now I have no idea where I am um, in my notes. What are they hoping to get uh, from the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord? Cynthia? The day of the Lord's judgment, okay. Mm. Mm. You believe those Philistines, those Egyptians. Oh, they're the worst. Oppressing people for 430 years and all of these things. Yo, we can't wait until they get what they have coming. Um, yeah, they're, they're looking for these things. Um, and, and this uh, picture... Um, well, the day of the Lord is inescapable judgment. It's as if you met a bear and you ran away from him and ran into a, uh, I'm sorry, if you met a lion and ran away from him and ran into a bear. And then by some miraculous uh, movement, you could escape. You know, R1, you did a stiff arm and, and twist and you, you got away into your house. Um, nobody got that joke, it's okay. Um, that's a Madden reference. Uh, R1, never mind. Um, so you could get away, you could get into your house, whew, you're out of breath, 
You can't believe what just happened. You put your arm on the wall, and you're bitten by the serpent, and death ensues. This is what the day of the Lord is. Uh, it is judgment that you cannot get away from. Uh, think of some of the New Testament ideas. On that day, they will call for the hills and the rocks to cover them and hide them from the day of the Lord. There is nowhere you can go to escape this judgment. If you refuse to turn, if you refuse to really seek the Lord as, as the prophet has been calling them to, this is what is coming. Um, now, um, somebody grab for me, please, uh, Isaiah chapter 13. In fact, let's all turn there. I had several um, passages to, to cross-reference of the day of the Lord, but we'll just look at this one. I think it's really, really clear. Isaiah chapter 13. Keep your hand in Amos if you can. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13, please? John, thank you. Thank you. What do we see um, similarities between Isaiah 13 and uh, Amos 5 when he describes the day of the Lord? John. Okay. The prideful, the pompous, those who are full of themselves that don't seek the Lord. Now, you'll notice that this is part of an oracle against Babylon in Isaiah. It's an oracle against an unbelieving nation that has nothing to do with uh, Yahweh, Lord of hosts. Um, and the Lord is, is declaring this is what the day of the Lord is like. Okay? What else? Darkness. This is a consistent theme. If you look in Joel, if you look in Obadiah, if you look in Zephaniah, all the different places uh, where the day of the Lord shows up, it shows up with darkness and gloom, with the stars being shaken out of the heavens, the, the sun refusing to give its light. Uh, this is a picture of, of God's judgment that, that you won't even receive the goodness that comes uh, with the light of day. Okay. And we saw that also in, in Amos. Look at verse 20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Okay, anything else that you see? John? No escape. You can't get away from it. Absolutely. Um, and so it, it's interesting to know that um, the, the phrase, the day of the Lord, only shows up in the prophets. It's not something that the Lord spoke of directly, of the specific day of the Lord, that particular phrase. It's not in, in the law. It's not in uh, the earlier writings. Um, it only shows up in the prophets, and in fact, if, as we have been saying, Amos is the earliest of the writing prophets, what we have in Amos chapter 5 is perhaps the first occurrence in Israel and in their history of this phrase, the day of the Lord. And so this, this is sort of a, a new concept, but the way that he speaks about it, it's clear that the people already know something about it. They expect God to judge, and there is this consistent theme through all the different prophets, it's a day of darkness, it's a day of of mourning, it's a day of, uh, of making men more scarce than the gold of Ophir. Uh, take a look back in Amos chapter 5, verse 3. The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, 
That which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. It is a, it is a decimation of the population, especially this is the, the military population. They marched out, they went out, and they didn't return uh, because the Lord is coming against them in judgment uh, and, and coming against them. Uh, so what is the day of the Lord? Well, it, it's a day of complete victory for God and for his sovereignty. It's a day for inescapable punishment of sinners. And so how could the people of Israel possibly be looking forward to that? I think Cynthia helped us out at the beginning. Tim? Come on, Tim. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have called the Sabbath the Lord's Day in that way, and, and this, this idea of the day of the Lord... Um, I, I don't think it's a pun. Um, yeah, and, and it's pretty clear that the day of the Lord is this thing. And it's even carried over in the New Testament where you see uh, there are these dual There is the Lord's day. There's the Sabbath day. But there is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And so there, there are two different ideas, I think, that are going on. How could they possibly be looking forward to this day of judgment and victory of the Lord? Bill? Well, it's all wonderful for Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me read for you a quote from uh, James Boyce. He says, It's important to understand two steps in the spiritual decline of nominally religious people. These people don't live for God, even though they think they do. They live for themselves. The first stage of their decline is to put off the day of reckoning. At this stage, they know what is right. They expect to do right someday. But in the meantime, they want the imagined benefits of a life of sin. The second stage comes when sin has so trapped them and distorted their thinking that they lose sight of what is right or wrong. They imagine their sin to be right conduct. And at this point, far from putting off the day of reckoning, they actually desire it. They imagine that their deeds will be vindicated and that the people they have wronged will be shown to be deserving of their conduct. Exactly as Cynthia was saying, all the Israelites are sitting there and saying, man, I can't wait until these other nations get what's coming to them. I uh, can't wait until the Lord shows up to vindicate us because aren't we his special people even though we've been ignoring his word and subverting his justice and turning away from him. In fact, uh, in verse 17, he talks about all the wailing that shall be in their midst. Why? Because I will pass through your midst. That's the same language as the Passover, folks. Uh, the Lord passes through Egypt and it says there was not a house that didn't have one dead and there was a great wailing in Egypt. Why? Because the oppressors are judged and the Lord is saying, you're doing the same thing. And I'm not coming to judge the other nations. I'm coming to judge you. And their sin is so great that they don't even recognize their sin. They're so entrapped that they don't even see it. They're so dead that they can't even understand it. And that's what this lamentation is about over and over again. I want to leave you. Uh, this will be the last thing we read, I promise. Uh, I want to leave you with a passage uh, from uh, 1 Thessalonians. Because this idea of the day of the Lord does show up in the New Testament. But there's a change. The day of the Lord actually is something to look forward to. It actually is something to hope for, but only because of who Christ is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16 through chapter 5, verse 6. Here's some pages turning. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you see the familiarity there? But again, verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This would fit right into Amos. 
this idea of a, a day of gloom and darkness, and what do you need? You need to turn to the Lord. You need to hate the evil. You need to seek the good. And he says, because of who Christ is, you are not of the darkness. This day will not come upon you, but you are children of the light. When he has exposed your sin, when your heart is sensitive to a biblical reproof, when you can open the scriptures and it lays you bare and you realize that it is living and active and it cuts to your joints and marrows and lays you bare before the Lord, that's a sign that you are alive. And it's a sign that you are in Jesus Christ. And it's a sign that you don't belong to the darkness, but you belong to the light. And so if you see that, if you hear that, be sober-minded, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Hate the evil, seek the good, seek the Lord, and live. That's the message of Amos chapter 5, uh, and that's the message of the New Testament. Let's end in prayer today. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we transition now to a time of uh, brief fellowship, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship. Pray that you would continue to speak to us uh, by word and prayer and your scriptures. And even at the table, that you would proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, that you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your glorious Son. And shine the light of the glory of Christ upon us as we worship and help us to glorify you that you would be exalted among your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.